and be seated. Turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21, verses 28 through 32. I'm going to be reading not from the New American Standard, as is my habit, but I'm going to be reading from the ESV, English Standard Version, today. And I'll explain why here in a, in a moment. Matthew chapter 21, verse 28 and following through verse 32. This is the word of God. God is speaking here. Yes, it's my voice you'll be hearing, but it's he whose message you will be hearing as I read. Um, His word is without error in the original languages in which it was given, and we have the promise in faithful translations, such as the ESV, uh, that this remains to us the authoritative word of God himself. So listen appropriately and accordingly. I'm going to back up to verse 23 to remind you of the context. And when he, that is Jesus, entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question. And if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John. From where did it come? From heaven or from men? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, Why then did you not believe? Why why did you why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And he said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. What do you think? A man had two sons. And he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, Tax collectors and the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. Amen. May God bless to us the reading of his word. Let's pray for its preaching. Join with me. O Lord, we do need your help now, I especially, um, but all of us need your help 
this is a dangerous time uh, when your word is expounded, for it can be abused by the by the minister. It can be abused by me or any other sinful man uh, in a pulpit. Please forbid that I should do that. And we pray also that you would help all of us who are listening, myself included, that we would listen with willing ears, that we would um, listen humbly, that we would listen carefully, and that we would hear what we need to hear from this message from you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Kids, I want to ask you if you've ever done this. And you don't have to shake your head one way or the other, okay? But you need to ask yourself this. I'm pretty sure I know the answer, but I'm not going to make you own up to it here in this group of people. But have you ever done this? Have you ever heard your mom or your dad say something to you um, and told you to do something? Said, for example, um, William, I want you to go outside and pick up your toys and bring them in so that they don't get rained on. Or, um, Bebo, I want you to uh, go get the rake out in the garden. I left it out in the garden. Something like that, or something else. And you were told, and then your dad or your mom walked away from you to do something else. And you had said for them, said to them just after they asked you to do whatever it is they asked you to do, yes, daddy, I'll go. Or yes, mommy, I'll do that. And then you didn't do it. Have you ever done that? The truth is all children have. Because you all are sinners, just like Pastor Mark. We're all sinners. And because we're sinners, we will sometimes say we're going to do something to our parents or to God, and then we don't do it. In fact, we do the just the opposite. You know that's sin, right? It's an evil thing. And it's something that we are all prone to do, even as Christians. We are prone to do that. To say one thing, And do another. It's called hypocrisy. And we all do it. And we need to pray that God would help us to do it less and less over time. And he will help us to do it less and less if we're truly Christians. But that brings us to the text that we're looking at today that deals with that issue of who's truly a Christian uh, and who is not. This is a continuation, verse 28 through 32 is a continuation of the discussion recorded in verses 23 through 27 that I read to you um, before I read the text that we're going to be looking at closely today. So it continues that discussion, it follows on that discussion, there's there's no time gap here. Uh, this is a non, uh, continuation of his Jesus' interaction with the chief priests and the elders. And we learn from Mark's account, I think, that there were also scribes there, the Pharisaic scribes, most of whom were Pharisees. And so this is a continuation of that discussion. It is Tuesday morning of the last week of Jesus' life, sometimes referred to as Passion Week. Um, and Jesus has been strolling about in the temple precinct, teaching a sizable group of people who have gathered around him. They see him, they know who he is, and they gather around Jesus as he's walking through the temple courts, uh, and they are asking him questions, and he is uh, teaching 
these people as he is strolling. Well, that, that comes from the very, if you compare the various accounts together as to what's going on. And as Jesus is walking in the temple and teaching those who have gathered around him, he is confronted by the chief priests, scribes, and the elders. The religious establishment, in other words. And he is confronted by them, and they want to know, and they ask him about his authority. Where did he get his authority to do the things that he had been doing? Presumably, they had in their mind the most recent things that Jesus had done, but also things that he'd done uh, over the course of his three-year ministry. But just prior to this uh, point in time, the day before, in fact, Jesus had uh, driven the buyers and sellers and money changers out of the courts, uh, the temple courtyard, the court of the Gentiles, uh, because they were defiling the place, the holy place of God. It was then holy. It's no longer holy, by the way, if you go to Jerusalem. But it was back then ceremonially holy in that um, because Jesus had not yet um, uh, fulfilled uh, his uh, um, his ministry there, uh, the atonement. But anyway, he was he was they were confronting him and they were saying, where do you get this authority to cleanse the temple? Where do you get the authority to um, heal people like he had just done also the day before? Where do you get the authority to accept, accept the accolades of those people that were calling you the son of David, the Messiah, which is a messianic title, when you came into town on that donkey? Where do you get this authority? Deep down inside, of course, these men knew the answer to their own question, where he got that authority. They knew better than just about anybody else, in fact, where he got that authority. Because they knew better than anyone else that the evidence that Jesus was, in fact, the promised Messiah of the Old Testament, Messiah means anointed one, the anointed one of God, the, uh, who is to be the deliverer of God's people from their sins, um, and who is to be the king of God's people to rule over them, that uh, that promised Messiah, Jesus evidenced himself to be that in, in blatant ways, in fulfillment of Old Testament scriptures that these men had studied and memorized and knew. And yet, because of their hardness of heart, these religious leaders could not bring themselves to acknowledge the obvious. That Jesus' authority came from God because he was God and is God and is also God's Messiah, the Anointed One, sent to deliver his people from their sins. So Jesus uses this parable after this uh, confrontation by these men or as he's, as they're confronting him, he uses this parable, brief one, to rebuke them for their hard-heartedness and also to warn them implicitly what will happen if they fail to repent. This is their last chance. I said that in the last section that we preached, but this is taken together. This is their last chance to repent. Before I get into the two points of the sermon, I want to talk, talk to you, and I don't normally do this, but this is important because uh, it's just important. 
there's, an, there's a textual issue here with respect to the Greek text behind the English. And I'm not going to get too much into the weeds, but I do want to tell you a little bit of why I use the ESV, the English Standard Version, rather than the New American Standard, because they're different. They, they flip-flop the order of things. Um, and uh, the or, this order issue doesn't affect the meaning of the parable, but it does affect which, script, uh, which, uh, which verses I reference and what's said in those verses as I'm preaching through, so that's why I'm taking the time to do it. So here it is. According to one of the... One family of Greek manuscripts, which is followed by the New American Standard, which is what I normally preach from, and a few other uh, uh, translations as well. According to one family of Greek manuscripts, the first son um, in the parable responds to his father's exhortation to go and work in the family vineyard with a yes. Yes, Dad, I'll go. And then he does not go. And the second son in that family of manuscripts tells his father, no, but eventually regrets having done so and goes. Okay, that's the first group of manuscripts. That's followed by the New American Standard, um, and and some, uh, perhaps some other uh, translations as well that I, d- I didn't take time to look at. But according to a second family of Greek manuscripts, followed by the ESV, the NIV, and the King James, uh, and others too, the first son in the parable, responds to his father's exhortation to go and work with a no, but eventually regrets doing so and then goes and works. While the second son responds to his father's instruction with a yes, but never actually goes and does the work. There is significant manuscript support for both of these orders, okay? Um, but I... I am fairly, fairly sure, uh, and it's not important that I be absolutely sure, but I'm fairly sure the second order, uh, followed by the ESV, the NIV, uh, the King James also, uh, is the correct order. And that is, uh, and my reason for this, by the way, is both a, a manuscript one and a logical one. It's a manuscript one because the evidence is a little bit stronger for, for that reading. Uh, but there's a logical reason for, for the, why I think this is correct and why others think it's correct, the order, uh, being the second order that I described there. And that is because if the first son said no, but later regretted his answer and then went and did the work, uh, there, w- there wouldn't have been a reason for the father to summon the second son since the first son eventually did the work. But you see, the second son is summoned. Why? Because the work didn't get done, presumably, by the first son, who said, yes, I'll do the work, Dad, and then didn't do the work. That's why I'm preaching from the ESV today. So if you happen to have a New American Standard, close it and just listen to me. <laughs> or, or get confused as I reference verses here, because uh, it will confuse you, uh, unless you're really good. You may be. Anyway, again, the order issue, it does not affect the meaning of the parable at all. So, okay, that's, let's get to the points of this parable. First is this. If you obey God's expressed will, you will enter the kingdom of heaven no matter how immoral you have been in the past. You will enter the kingdom of heaven no matter how immoral you've been in the past. The second point that is taught by this parable is that if you refuse to obey God's expressed will, you will not 
enter the kingdom of heaven, no matter how religious or moral you have been in life. These are the two points that are being made here. First, if you obey God's express will for you, um, you will enter the kingdom of heaven, which is to say, in this life, be become uh, a, a member of the covenant community, and you will go to heaven uh, as the final destination of those who are in Christ in this life, no matter how sordid your past has been. The father described in this parable owns a vineyard. This vineyard is presumably a major source of income for his family, for he and his sons uh, uh, and wife, if he has one. Um, And because the entire family is dependent upon this vineyard for their collective survival, uh, it is reasonable to expect, it was then, it would be now, uh, to expect every member of the family to do his or her part to ensure that the vineyard remained productive and brought forth the the produce that they would get income from to sustain them. The father, in this parable, having noticed that the vineyard is in need of attention, we don't know if it needs harvesting or if it needs weeding or if it needs whatever, but it needs something, it needs work. And the father, having noticed that fact, approaches one of his sons uh, and instructs him to do what needs doing. And the way that this son of his responds to his father's directive is nothing short of shocking. Again, I'm following the ESV now, its order. The son shows his father absolutely no respect whatsoever. He doesn't even address him as sir the way his brother later would, the second brother that the father hasn't yet approached. Uh, This first son doesn't even use sir in his address of his father, unlike the second son that is approached. In fact, what he does is he brazenly refuses to do before uh, what his father has instructed him to do, and he does it to his face. No, I will... uh, Where is it here? 29. He answered, I will not. In other words, I'm not going to do what you're telling me to do, Dad. Not going to happen. Didn't get enough spankings when he was a kid. Anyway, um, he defies his dad in this brazen manner. This insolent young man's, fortunately, this insolent young man's, or providentially, his conscience, however, soon gets the best of him. He realizes that uh, his defiance of his father was very wrong. He regrets having done it. And in response, uh, he changes his mind about going into the gar- into the vineyard, and he goes. And he starts working and does what his dad told him to do. In other words, he belatedly, but ultimately, obeys his father. And the uh, scribes, and the, uh, the the chief priests and the elders and the scribes got it right when Jesus asked them, who obeyed? And they said, he did. And they were right. He did. Belatedly, but ultimately. After getting 
these religious opponents of Jesus to admit uh, that this initially defiant but finally obedient son was the one who ultimately did his father's will, Jesus then drops a bombshell on them. And he informs them, he tells them that this obedient son who did his father's will, finally, represents all of the tax collectors and the prostitutes who have embraced John the Baptist's message that was recently preached by John. They are the obedient son. Tax collectors and prostitutes, as I think all of you know, uh, um, were widely considered to be among the most immoral of people, the tax collectors, because they were greedy. Uh, virtually all of them were greedy and committed extortion on a regular base, basis, extorted money from people. Uh, and, of course, the prostitutes need no explanation why they were reviled uh, and pariahs in society. They were, they were all immoral, and they were... Um, they represented the immoral um, um, dregs of society. And yet it is these practitioners of evil and others like them whom Jesus now identifies as those who have done the will of his Father like the finally obedient first son in the parable, ESV order. Well, in what sense did these um, immoral folks who had lived a long time in defiance of God and his law, in what sense did they, after having believed John's message, how how is it that they did the will of the Father or were doing the will of the Father, as Jesus indicates uh, they were? in the latter part of our passage. Well, first, they did the will of the Father by trusting in the one about whom John preached, who was Jesus of Nazareth himself, who's telling the parable. Specifically, by trusting in Jesus, that Jesus was the anointed one of God, promised in the old, throughout the Old Testament scriptures, the Messiah, that he was the one that had been promised from the garden onward umpteen times in umpteen prophecies in the Old Testament. They trusted that Jesus was the one, because John said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world, pointing to Christ. Um, And he presumably did that, I would think, on more than one occasion, but we know of at least one occasion when he did that. But also, not only did they trust that he was the Messiah, but they also trusted that he was the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, and they personally were trusting in Jesus alone to take away their sins from the sight of the Father who would otherwise need to destroy them. And us, by the way. They were trusting these wretched folks in Jesus to reconcile them to God. The second way in which they were now doing the will of the Father, their Father, who is now their Father, those who were repentant tax collectors and prostitutes, is they they repented of their former wickedness 
And we're walking in new obedience. Just as Zacchaeus did. Remember what Zacchaeus did after he had that interaction with Jesus uh, in the tree? Or actually after he climbed down from the tree? Remember what he did? He decided to give up half of his possessions and give them to the poor after believing in Jesus. He was a tax collector. And he's saying, these folks, these folks no longer are living as they once did. Implied in the, in the text that we're looking at today. And folks, that's something, this is important, hear me. That's something that all believers in Jesus Christ will do if they are truly believers in Jesus Christ. Sadly, there are lots of people who call themselves Christians that fill the church regularly, who say they're Christians and are practicing evil behaviors. Now, we all sin. Christians sin. You all know this. Uh, we all struggle with sin. We all fall into sin at times. But Christians, the difference is Christians see their sin as sin and, and as horrible. And they come to their senses uh, sooner or later and go, I'm so sorry, Lord. This is horrible that I've done this to you. My, my deceit, my lust, my pride, my gossip, uh, my whatever. My not loving my wife or my children. Lord, this is terrible. Please forgive me. That's what a true Christian does. They, they turn from their sins. And I have to repeatedly turn from their sins, but they do. Yeah. And if you're listening to me now in this room or remotely, and you claim to be a Christian, but you are not repenting of things you know offend God, you're living in some sin. Now that might be a uh, subtle, it might be a flagrant sin like um, uh, sexual sins of some nature. And there are lots of those. It might be um, racism. That you're a racist. You hate people because of the color of their skin. Or think less of them than you think of yourself. It could be pride. You think you're God's gift to the world. Whatever it is that you're practicing, whatever sin it is, you are not a Christian. You are not on the road to heaven if you are practicing sin in your life. It's just a fact. Not because I say it, but because Jesus says it in multiple places through his word. One of which is one I regularly turn to, but I will... Actually, I'll turn to that in my Bible, um, because it's easier for me to get to. Um, And that is in 1 John. Hopefully some of you have already memorized this passage. 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 and following. And by this you know that you, uh, by this we know that we have come to know him, meaning knowing him, him is Jesus here, uh, based on the context. Uh, And knowing him means knowing him savingly in a way that has brought about reconciliation between you and God. By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I've come to know him, lip service, and does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. And he goes on uh, and says more about that. But the point is, um, 
You can't be forgiven while you're practicing sin. And so if you're in that category, my friend, you're in grave danger of going to hell for eternity. We all deserve it, but you'll get it unless you repent of your sins and flee to Jesus alone, who is God and man and one person still is, and who is the only Savior of sinners. That is the only person who can rescue you from hell because he endured it in the place of all those who will trust in him. You need Christ, and you need, and if you truly believe in Christ, you will repent and keep repenting of your sins. So, what does Christ say about these former practitioners of evil, tax collectors and prostitutes and the like, who heeded John the Baptist? Uh, his message by putting their trust in the one that John was speaking of in Jesus to save them. We read in verse 31 his words. I can find it here. Uh, In the latter part of the verse, Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you, meaning you religious gentlemen who are now opposing me. The best way to render the Greek here, by the way, and um, and I, I say this um, caref- cautiously, but I am convinced it's the case, uh, that the, the New American Standard doesn't get it right, I don't think, and I don't think even the ESV here, although it's better in the ESV, it's still not the best rendering of, of the original. Uh, and it's important for understanding. So he's saying, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are going into the kingdom of God or are getting into the kingdom of God before you. In other words, at present, they are getting into the kingdom of God before you. Rather than speaking of some future event like that would happen in the day of judgment or when Jesus returns or whatever, or when somebody dies. Uh, he's saying right now, um, and there are reasons for that that I'm not, certainly not going to get into here, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes are, are getting into the kingdom of God before you. The kingdom of God, by the way, is the realm in which God's kingly authority and rule is manifested and recognized. That's the kingdom of God that he is referring to. And the elect, those whom God has chosen to save, uh, once they, upon believing, they enter the kingdom of God. We have entered into the realm of God's kingdom as Christians. And we will enter into its fullest manifestation when we go to heaven. Necessarily. If you're in now, you will be in later. It can't be withdrawn from you. God doesn't doesn't uh, change his mind about uh, who he saves. Um, and so what Jesus is saying here when he says the tax collectors and the prostitutes are going into the kingdom before you, meaning you religious leaders, he's saying, well, at least one of the points he's making is those immoral, once immoral folks are entering into God's kingdom in spite of their pasts, in spite of the vile things these people have done, they are getting in. And he's also saying, and you're not. But we'll get to that in a second. 
But he's telling them, those people are getting in who have had sordid pasts. There's a very important lesson here for all of us. Perhaps, I don't know, but perhaps you, uh, perhaps you're listening to us afar, perhaps you are one, a person who has trusted, has not, excuse me, has not trusted in Jesus to be your Savior and Lord, has not become a Christian, in other words. Perhaps you go to church, but you've not become a Christian truly in your heart. Um, And perhaps, as a non-Christian, you have a particularly sinful and shameful past. You've done things that you know are wicked. And perhaps a lot of things. And perhaps you aren't a Christian now. You haven't uh, trusted in Jesus because you don't think God can forgive you of what you've done. You are wrong if that's you. And this passage proves that point. Jesus, God forgives, the Father forgives tax collectors, prostitutes, liars, adulterers, murderers who flee to Jesus in faith and repentance. True faith brings with it true repentance and ongoing repentance to a person, no matter what their past So if you have been afraid to ask God to forgive you, trusting in Jesus to bring that forgiveness about, because you don't think God would want to forgive somebody like you, you're wrong. Go to him and ask for his forgiveness, and he will grant it to you if you're trusting in Jesus alone to accomplish that forgiveness and that reconciliation with God. Maybe you're a Christian. Maybe you're here, out there. But you're a Christian who has done some things that you don't think you can be forgiven of. Even as a Christian, you too are wrong. You are wrong. God can and will forgive you. He has already, actually, if you're truly a Christian already. You just need to apprehend the mercy of God in Christ, which is... Uh, part of the definition of repentance, uh, repentance unto life uh, in the Shorter Catechism. You need to apprehend what God has already done for you, and you need to accept that you're forgiven. And you need to move on and stop beating yourself up over your past. Because God isn't beating you up. Well, secondly, and briefly, much briefer, I promise you, than the first point. If you, first point is, if you obey God's expressed will, you will enter the kingdom of God, no matter how immoral you've been. But the second point is, it's opposite. If you refuse, if you refuse to obey God's expressed will, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven, no matter how religious or seemingly moral you've been. As a result of the first son's refusal to go, the father had to go uh, to a second son of his, who in spite of his, or or the second son, who in very polite oriental fashion, uh, does refer to his father as sir, and does agree to go into the vineyard to work. But 
In spite of that verbal agreement to do so, he never follows through on his commitment to go. Like the son who agreed to do his father's will, the second son who agreed to do his father's what his father told him but never did it, these religious leaders that Jesus is facing right now as he's saying these words, they professed to be doers of God's will. Everybody, most everybody in society thought they were. Oh, well, these these are these are servants of Jehovah. These rabbis, these chief priests. They professed to be doers of God's will, but Jesus is saying through this parable, they weren't. They were not doing God's will. For you see, God had commanded them to do what he commands every sinner this side of eternity to do. And what many Jewish tax collectors and prostitutes in Jesus' day had already done. And that is, he had commanded the religious leaders of that day, to embrace him as their Messiah and to believe, uh, to, to put their heartfelt trust in him alone to first deliver them from the judicial wrath of God that their sins deserved and secondly to rule over them as their king. He commanded them to do that through the preaching of the Old Testament prophets, through the preaching of John and through the preaching of Jesus. They had heard it multiple occasions. They'd memorized whole scriptures, undoubtedly, that said as much. And yet these supposedly religious men stubbornly, obstinately refused to obey Yahweh's command to them to put their soul trust in his beloved son who was the only appointed mediator between God and men. They wouldn't do it. They refused to believe The text tells us even after having witnessed tax collectors and prostitutes embracing Jesus as the Messiah, as the promised hope of Israel. And Jesus implies in the last verse of our section, uh, verse 32, that by witnessing other people, the, the, the outcasts of society, embracing Jesus as their king, and as their deliverer, and as they observed that and scorned and scoffed at what they were doing, uh, it made them even more culpable for their own sin of rebellion against, or of refusal. And they refused Jesus' offer of forgiveness because they had hearts of stone rather than hearts of flesh. Every, every person who has ever been born in this world except for Jesus is born, is conceived with a heart of stone. Dead, in other words. Hard. Hating God. You may be out there and maybe say, well, I'm not a Christian, but I don't hate God. Yes, you do. You do hate God. Because if you loved God, you would flee to His Son as your Savior and as your King. But you have not done that because you hate Him.
And what does Christ say about these highly religious and learned men who had not trusted in Jesus to reconcile them to God as John had urged? He tells them in verse 31, again, uh, the same text that I referred to earlier, passage, second part of the verse, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes, my translation, are getting into the kingdom of God before you. Are getting into the kingdom of God before you. In other words, these people that you so despise are serving in God's kingdom and are going to heaven. And you're not. You religious men. And we learn they were, the, the, they were on the road to heaven, those who were in the kingdom already. And we learn later uh, that the situation that these re- religious leaders that Jesus is addressing were facing was actually much worse than that they weren't in the kingdom right now, as Jesus is talking to them. We learn from um, later in Matthew and also in the corresponding passages in Mark, but I'll read from Matthew, 23, uh, what was the actual situation for these men, or at least many of them, because he's addressing a similar audience. Starting in verse 13, reading through verse 15, and then skipping down to verse 33. He says in verse 13, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, and of course you could insert chief priests there too and elders, but woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from men. For you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. And here, the, uh, the, this passage probably wasn't found originally in Matthew's account, but it is found in Mark's and Luke's, and so I'm going to read it, because it's found there. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you devour widows' houses, even while for a pretense you make long prayers. Therefore, you shall receive greater condemnation. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel about on sea and land to make one proselyte, meaning one convert, and when he comes, becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. And then verse 33, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how shall you escape the sentence of hell? These men were reprobates. They weren't going to ever trust Jesus, it appears. At least most, if not all of them, that he was speaking to on this occasion. uh, Verse 20, uh, chapter 23, and likewise over in chapter 21. These men were going to experience the eternal wrath of God when they took their last breath. Deservedly so, which of course is what we all deserve. And they were going to go and did go to hell in spite of having been very religious. Note that. In spite of, as we just read, having prayed long prayers and frequent prayers, after having participated in and indeed led worship services in the temple, after having studied and known the scriptures and memorized the scriptures, they went to hell. They went to hell in spite of having been Outward, presumably, keepers of God's law, as understood by the people of that day. 
Moral, in other words, at least outwardly. They went to hell. If you are trusting even slightly, if you're trusting even slightly in the religious activities that you engage in, in your church going, in your Bible reading, in your frequent praying, in your witnessing even, perhaps, if you're trusting in those religious activities to help you get yourself into heaven, you are on the road to hell right now because you're not trusting in Jesus alone to make you right with God. And you need to get right with him now and abandon your trust in anything that you have done, religious or otherwise. Also, if you're trusting even slightly in your own virtuous conduct to help you get into heaven, you too are on the road to hell. And you need to get off that road by fleeing to Jesus alone to save you. Don't, don't not decide. If you understand what I'm saying is true and this applies to you, don't, because of your foolish pride, refuse Jesus. Refuse to be forgiven by God through Jesus. Because you'll suffer eternally for it if you do. Repent of your sins. Trust Jesus. And as you're doing so, you will repent of your sins. May God give you the grace to do that. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this passage. We thank you. Sobering though it is, it is good to be reminded of what is, uh, of what is important. And that is uh, not our pasts, not our uh, religiosity. None of these things are ultimately important. What is important is what we do with Jesus. Lord, if anybody here in this room or watching me remotely, Lord, is has been uh, pretending to be a Christian, or perhaps hasn't been pretending, been pretending at all, uh, but understands that what I am saying is true, would you please bring a new heart to these individuals? Would you please change, transform them so that they can believe and trust in Jesus to save them and to be the king, the new king of their lives. And for the rest of us, Lord, again, we, I pray for those people. We pray for those people who um, are having troubles um, forgetting about, not dredging up their pasts, who are Christians, but who keep beating themselves up. If there's someone here today listening to me who's doing that, would you please give that individual grace to uh, apprehend your mercy, O God, in Christ and your forgiveness, to feel it, to sense it, to know it, to be sure of it, and to be changed thereby. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. Receive now God's blessing. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely.
And may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete, without blame, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. Amen.